And then we'll uh, we'll go through the cases. Um, Oceanport, which is our tribunal independence case, talking about the constitutional differences between administrative tribunals and the courts and how that resonates in the amount of independence that's required. And I think Oceanport also is a good case to just have as a sort of very high level understanding of the fundamental nature of administrative tribunals, kind of in a way that you don't get in other cases quite as clearly or as well. So I'm going to highlight some of the passages from that uh, in that respect that I like Oceanport for. We're going to go to the Taseco case, which I like as a, um, a good review of the Baker. We're sort of winding up a procedural fairness here. Uh, and it also is a good case because it really focuses on the concept of Audi alter and partum at a high level and gives you a, um, you know, a case to turn to when you start thinking about that concept, which I've spoken about so many times, but you don't really have a, a clear and single case to sort of go back to to see it being applied and to think about how those fundamental principles would resonate in an interesting factual scenario. And then we'll end with the question of delay. When does delay become a problem, an abusive process potentially? And uh, what kind of remedies might you get when you do get up to that level of a potential abusive process? So starting off with our institutional bias, you know, revisiting the question of bias. Remember, we situated this last class as a concern around when it's not the individual decision maker who has something about them or their history that leads you to believe they couldn't decide the matter fairly. But rather your concern is there's something going on with this tribunal that's meaning it will be unable to find fairly, potentially even in a number of cases. There's some sort of pressure, some sort of undue pressure being placed on the decision maker that's coming from within that tribunal itself. That's when you get a concern around institutional bias. And you know you could imagine a hypothetical situation where you have a tribunal chair who's just dead set uh, accomplishing a particular goal and is encouraging or demanding that all the tribunal members exercise their discretion in a particular way, is taking that away from them and even doing so in a way that's discriminatory or favors one type of litigant over another. These would be obvious instances where you would say to the tribunal, there's a, if you could, knew about it, and there's evidentiary problems in finding out about it, but if you knew about this, you know, saying there's a problem at this tribunal, there's undue pressure being placed upon you, this is giving rise to a perception of unfairness that would exist in a number of cases or that transcends even this, just this one case. And that could be a, a you know, clear example of the potential for institutional bias. The difficulty is you often don't have something so cut and dry where you have a, you know, a tribunal that's got some sort of leadership that's really off the rails, pushing its decision makers in a particular direction. And even if that does exist, it's rare that you would you know, have solid evidence that that happened. So certainly that's a potential type of institutional bias, the kind of obvious one. Um, but there's also more subtle things that can give rise to institutional bias concerns. And those are, I think, well discussed in your book and are the subject of some 
Supreme Court of Canada jurisprudence that it's helpful to, you know, have at least thought about briefly. And one of the major things that comes up in the context of, you know, institutional bias concerns is this idea of post-hearing there being some sort of consultation that's even alleged to be sort of pressure on a decision maker that comes from within the tribunal. And you get this concept of full board meetings discussed in your, in your um, book. And you also see a discussion briefly of um, you know, consultation on draft decisions. But both of these things are getting at the same fundamental underlying problem where you have a decision maker, they hear a case, they're in the process of putting out their decision, and during that time, some other person from within the tribunal is alleged to have gotten involved and start to pressure this decision maker to decide in a particular way. The full board meeting is just what it sounds like. You may have all the decision makers come together in a room and the you know, head of the tribunal may say something like, listen, we have a number of these cases that are raising this issue and we need to come down in a really consistent way on this and we need to find these cases you know, to have this sort of a result. Well, all of a sudden, this person who heard a, a case you know, didn't have any sort of binding policy that could have been shared with the parties or anything like that to have some arguments about, all of a sudden has been pressured by the tribunal, internal to the tribunal, to find in a particular way in that case. This is a situation that can give rise to an institutional bias concern. Similarly, consultation on draft decisions, you know, you could imagine the tribunal chair calls tribunal member into the office and says, I understand you have this important case before you. What are you thinking of uh, deciding? Because I really think that it ought to go this, this, and this way. You know, a similar dynamic of a concern that there's been pressure that's placed on a decision maker coming from within the tribunal, giving rise to a bias concern. Now, I'm going to stop on that point because it is, in a way, you can see it as, as bias in the sense that there's um, sort of weight on the scale in favor of one particular result and weight that it seems to be not uh, done in a fair way in the sense that there's not a clear set out policy that you could understand. Um, rather, this is coming secretively in the absence of the parties knowing about this sort of meeting happening in an absence of an opportunity to make responding submissions. So it can feel um, from the perspective of an unhappy litigant that there is something biased against me. This person came in and started advocating against my position you know, behind the scenes. So in a way it can fall within the rubric of bias, um, you know, I think pretty intuitively. But I think more broadly, it really gets at another equity that's close to and overlaps with, but isn't necessarily coextensive with bias. And this is this maxim, this principle, 
that the person who hears must decide, that the decision must be made by the decision maker and not somebody else. The person who heard the matter and was tasked with making the decision must actually make the decision. And there can be circumstances where um, a violation of that rule very clearly gives rise to a biased concern. You know, you heard this, but this tribunal chair who's coming with an agenda that really weighs in favor of one type of person over another has come in and pressured you to find another way. You know, they're the one who's ultimately making the decision for all intents and purposes, and they're biased against me. Now, you could put it that way. But you could also have more neutral things where there isn't really any obvious bias, but you're still having a decision be taken away from the decision maker and being in essence made by somebody else. And so that's why I say this person who hears must decide is sort of a broader concept than you think of when you think of really true bias that, you know, disposition against a particular outcome, uh, inability to decide the thing fairly. Like there may be a, a very neutral and doesn't really favor any party over another, um, but if that is imposed upon somebody and in essence a decision is made in a, in a way for that person because they're forced to follow this new policy, this new approach, or are told directly how to decide a case, even if it's not coming from a place of what intuitively, intuitively feels like bias, you still have the problem of the person who hear, heard the case not being the same person who decided the case. Does that all make sense? Okay, so institutional bias, um, you know, is the same fundamental test of a reasonable person fully informed of the circumstances, but think it's more likely than not that this tribunal was unable to decide the matter fairly. So the, the, the fundamental test hasn't changed, but the source and the sort of considerations that can arise have changed and that we're now not targeting the individual, but we're looking more broadly at pressure that's causing a problem. One other source of potential institutional bias concerns that I want to discuss, and this one can be frustrating um, and a little bit tricky, but I think hopefully with our broader administrative law kind of um, mindset, the way it all lands should make some intuitive sense. And this is this concept of multifunctionality. This idea that sometimes a tribunal has more than one function, and sometimes that includes adjudicative plus something else. Adjudicative plus policy making. Adjudicative plus investigation. Adjudicative plus prosecution. It's the one that gets, I think, the most in sort of natural feeling of that seems that seems wrong. And this is discussed in the Oceanport case. It's not the reason I assigned the case, because it's a something of a secondary issue. 
but it is discussed in that case. But I think the clearest example in my mind comes from the Law Society of British Columbia, and there's other places do the same thing. But when you go to the Law Society, you um, for a, a, say a discipline hearing, and you know there's a good chance that um, some of you may act as counsel on discipline hearing matters. You know they come up with regularity. If you do admin law, it's an area that you get pulled into. Um, to be, to be honest, as far as it goes, it's quite high paying administrative law work. So a lot of law firms will take these things on and there's some prestige in a sense in being associated with this. So it's, um, it's an area that a lot of lawyers do, do get involved with. If you go to that, you're gonna find the, um, you know, the, the, this dynamic feels, feels uncomfortable where you are going to the Law Society building and you are sitting before a panel set out under the Legal Professions Act, a panel of the Law Society, a panel that includes a bencher, a lay person, and a lawyer who's not a bencher, but who's appointed to the Law Society Discipline Tribunal. And the case is being prosecuted by the Law Society and those people work in the Law Society building. And this would intuitively make you feel that the prosecution and the judge are you know, part and parcel of the same organization. And isn't that gonna at least give the appearance that there's gonna be a predisposition towards the, the, the prosecution in these types of cases? There's a multifunctionality of this tribunal where they're performing adjudicative and prosecutorial roles. And that certainly can give an apprehension that there is something institutionally untowards here that's gonna stack the deck against lawyers defending themselves and institutional bias. So why is that allowed? Why haven't any one of the many clever lawyers who you know are facing the tribunal uh, not raise that? And the answer is simple, and hopefully you're one step ahead of me. The reason that this is okay is that it's explicitly authorized in statute. Statute says this will be the function, this will be the organization. And so you have this nicely in the dicta in, in Oceanport, which if you didn't look at that section, it's the, the end of the highlighted portion talks about this problem. But Chief Justice McLaughlin in Oceanport says, well, listen, when the statute directly assigns this sort of a multifunctionality to a tribunal, there's no role for us to say that the common law principles of natural justice are offended and must override this direct statutory organization. And that's just, again, that simple principle that the common law is subordinate to statute. So absent a constitutional argument that there's some constitutional problem with the statute that authorized the multifunctionality, we're stuck with it. The other side of that coin, though, 
is if the statute doesn't authorize multifunctionality, it really could be a problem for a tribunal to start to take on different functions that it wasn't told to do. And you could imagine a situation where a tribunal starts to get about, get sort of outside its mandate, perhaps by starting to go a little far into an investigative function it wasn't asked to do. You know, a tribunal may be tasked with adjudication, and you may have a tribunal who's eager and ambitious and decides to do a really great job by, by getting out there and finding out what's really going on, you know, doing their own investigation, looking into things on their own volition. But if that's not authorized by statute, and you're supposed to be an, an adjudicator, then the fact that you're out investigating on your own volition, that could cause a big problem. That would be the sort of thing where multifunctionality would raise natural justice concerns, common law concerns around fairness. And in the absence of a statute to trump those concerns, then you potentially have a big problem. Another way it could resonate is you may have multifunctionality. You could be prosecutor and you could be adjudicator. You may have that in the statute. You may have that required of you. But that doesn't mean the court's not going to expect you to discharge that statutory role and to administer that statutory function in a reasonably fair way in the circumstances. So at the Law Society, they are keenly aware of this problem, of this potential appearance of um, impropriety due to their multifunctions in the discipline context. So the prosecutorial and investigative arms of the Law Society are segregated from the adjudicative arms. You know, they, they don't work on the same floors, they don't share staff, they don't share computer resources. So it's not possible for the prosecutors to um, hopefully gain an unfair advantage over the defense just because they're working within the same system. If you didn't have that, if you had a system where you know, the prosecutorial and the adjudicative arms were having meetings every two weeks where they're discussing major cases, where the adjudicators were maybe directing the investigators as to what to look into and whom to look into about. Those sorts of things would be huge problems, notwithstanding the fact that a multifunctionality was, was um, contemplated by the legislature. You still have an obligation to accomplish that multifunctionality in a reasonably fair way. So, you know, that's the kind of way this all resonates in our, our big picture administrative law framing is we have to think that whenever we're talking about these common law rules of procedural fairness or natural justice, you can call it either one. Whenever we're talking about these common law fairness and procedural justice questions, we have to remember we're always subordinate to constitutionally valid legislation. But when you have constitutionally valid legislation, you need to administer that legislation in a reasonably fair way. And when something isn't you know, explicitly given to you to do in an otherwise unfair way, 
courts are going to assume you had to do it fairly and they're going to you know, use the common law to get to what those minimal standards of fairness would be. Any questions on that? All right. Um, so that's really what I have on institutional bias. I want you to think of it, don't think of it as such a categorically different thing from you know individual bias so much as think of you have your bias test and you can locate individual or institutional based on where the pressure or the sort of untoward influence is being seen as coming from the next thing i want to do is tribunal independence and this is you know again a closely related but actually theoretically quite discrete concept and this is when the concern is that the admin tribunal is somehow being subject to external pressure that would seem to compromise its ability to decide matters in a fair way. And we'll remember that we talked about judicial independence having these four indicia of security of tenure, uh, financial security, administrative control, and uh, deliberative um, autonomy. And we want to think about how each one of these may or may not extend into the, um, the tribunal world. But you can imagine the uh, the ways in which a tribunal could feel, you know, external pressure if it doesn't have reasonable facsimiles of these various hallmarks of judicial independence. So, you know, security of tenure for judges is absolute until you get to 75, with the exception of that arduous process I mentioned briefly in the last class to remove a judge. Admin tribunals, on the other hand, security of tenure can be nearly non-existent. The statute may say you serve at pleasure, and that means you can be fired at any time for any reason. Uh, I think it's obvious but important to state that the subtle pressure that you can feel knowing you could lose your job at any time if you displease somebody else uh, you know is shouldn't be understated how much that could affect the way you would do your job and so having a lack of security of tenure and knowing that you could be fireable at any time can lead to at least the impression that you are incentivized to please the people who have the power to fire you. And it may be that part of your job is adjudicating issues that could displease that, uh, you know, the, the government itself. A lot of admin tribunals make decisions which go contrary to other parts of the executive's wishes or even the political will that's been um, sort of set forward at the highest level of the executive. You, know, you may have tribunals that operate as a check 
Um, and it protects some human rights here against some overreach that's happening in other government policy. Well, if your human rights commissioners are concerned that they could be fired at will for any decision they make that's you know, distasteful to the government, are they really going to find that systemic discrimination has happened in this provision of you know, indigenous youth services that they're being asked to consider? It, it may lead to an impression of a problem. So what degree of security of tenure is needed? That's the Ocean Port case. And we'll talk about that in a second. You know, financial security, we touched on briefly last class, but financial security is, is the one where the judges have found that they get to get paid really well. Tribunals get much less uh, money as a general rule. Being a tribunal member oftentimes is by any reasonable standards of the average person in Canadian society, a very well-paid job most of them. There are some that are volunteer tribunals, like the Law Society Tribunal is one of those. Uh, but most of the professional tribunals, you get paid well. You don't get paid nearly as well as, um, as many lawyers do. And you certainly don't get paid as well as judges do. So does that mean that the tribunals are vulnerable to a perception that they're susceptible to outside financial dealings, to, to bribery fundamentally is the question. And the courts, you know, for how much they have defended their own principle that they get to get paid really well, that they found in the Constitution. They're like, there's not a lot of unwritten things in the Constitution, but this is one of them. The, uh, the they defended that. They've had very little time for arguments that tribunals really need um, significant financial security to decide matters freely, and they've fallen back on. Well, we can assume the good faith of public servants, and we can uh, we can we would need some evidence of um, of a particular pressure coming in before we think this is a concern. Uh, so this is one that really hasn't gotten much traction in the tribunal world. You know, you would have expected some more tribunal members themselves to have pushed this, I think, and I'm sure they do in negotiations. But um, fundamentally, this is one that is more or less confined to the judicial world in terms of where it really has had some power. That said, um, you know, there's a, a dynamic that you want to remember of tribunals being ideally accessible, uh, well-staffed, well-resourced, within finite government budgets. And so that means that if you were to find a principle that tribunals had to be paid extremely well, tribunal members had to be paid really well, that could run contrary to your broader goals of increasing access. Um, the next one is administrative or institutional control. And this is the idea that the courts have developed, that they ought to be able to run their, their, their court as they see fit on matters of staffing, you know, matters of allocation of the resources they're given, and really most importantly on questions of who's going to hear what case. 
And people have drawn an analogy to the tribunals and said, well, there should be the same autonomy for tribunals. I don't want the government coming in and telling the residential tenancy branch or the Human Rights Commission, you have to prioritize your resources to be able to respond to this type of a concern, or you have to assign this decision maker to this high profile case. You know, perhaps somebody the government feels would be amenable to their position if they could be a litigant in that case. So this is an area where there is more real concern. And in the absence of direct statutory language to the contrary, the courts are going to protect tribunal, this sort of independence, the sort of administrative independence. And if there is outside pressure coming from outside the tribunal telling them to do something in a particular way, but there's no authorization to bring that kind of pressure to bear, that can be a problem. That said, I'm really getting at sort of direct pressure. You have your budget, spend it this way. You have your tribunal members assign this one. Indirect pressure through setting the budget is much harder to police for the courts. So there can be instances where a tribunal that's not broadly favorable to a government's policy of preferences and objectives will see their funding frozen or significantly cut, thereby compromising their ability to do their job, but in a way that's very difficult for the courts to step in and monitor. You could imagine a um, you know, perhaps very conservative government choosing to underfund the Human Rights Commission. You could imagine a, it tends to be a conservative government would, would be the one who would underfund something. So you could imagine a very conservative government underfunding an environmental protection group, uh, agency. The courts are loath to get into full government budgeting discussions. Allocation of resources amongst the you know, totality of executive functions is the way the government would frame that in response. And in order to make a complaint about resource allocation to the tribunal at the high level, how much dollars are you getting this year, you would almost certainly have to show something getting to the level of bad faith, some, some clear evidence that there is an untowards purpose for this funding deficit. So in reality, that is an exceptionally powerful tool to put pressure on tribunals. I can cut your entire budget next year. It's also a tool that's hard for the courts to really get involved with. For, for decent reasons, it is hard for the courts to understand, review, and second-guess budget allocations. So, you know, we were thinking that there is some pressures that would go right on to the individual decision-makers from the outside, your security of tenure, 
whether or not you have um, adequate financial you know, compensation so that you're comfortable and that you can focus on your job and that you're not you know, potentially tempted by you know, some untoward deal. You also have pressures that can come from the executive at the tribunal more broadly. Here's how you should administer your tribunal. Here's how you should run your tribunal. The final one is a sort of deliberative independence or autonomy. And this is where you would have somebody from outside the tribunal trying to come right in and tell the tribunal how to decide a case or to pressure them on how to decide a case. Obviously a problem. A direct affront to the independence of a tribunal. Okay, so those are the kind of categories of independence and some of the considerations that come to bear. I next want to just set out the test that the Supreme Court's articulated for when tribunal independence will be compromised. And it really is very akin to our bias test. And you know, it's important to think of these things as closely related, but just to remember the conceptual distinction from where the pressure is coming from. So the test for institutional tribunal independence is, would a reasonable, well-informed person, having thought the matter through, conclude that an administrative decision maker is sufficiently free of factors that could interfere with his or her ability to make impartial judgments. Sufficiently free of factors that could interfere with his or her ability to make impartial judgments. So it's it's really just the other side of the coin. Uh, it's not, it's, are you getting sufficient freedom from external factors that are going to interfere with your ability to make impartial judgments? And it's the same context, 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 reasonable person uh, approach that we've been, you know, hammering over and over again. And, you know, again, that's where the the difficulty gets in predicting and applying this law is that the broad range of admin tribunals and admin actors means that what amount of independence is going to be necessary to accomplish your judicial or your legislatively mandated function you know varies greatly from tribunal to tribunal and what interests are at stake before them and so there's a good quote from the Matsqui case which is in your your book, I believe, um, it's in the notes also, uh, Matt's Glee case. And this is just hammering that context, context, context point. They say the test for institutional independence must be applied in light of the functions being performed by the particular tribunal at issue. The requisite level of institutional independence, security of tenure, financial security, administrative control, will depend on the nature of the tribunal, the interests at stake, and other indices of independence. So you have the 
you know, I wish I could give you more almost because it's an interesting area. But really, you have these four factors, these four ideas, these four potential categories of problematic behavior vis-a-vis a tribunal. And you have the idea that you're going to have to go to context. And you have the idea that, you know, here's the test. Reasonable, well-informed person fully appraised the circumstances. Now, you know, it's almost like either we do 100 permutations of this or we just do one. And ultimately, we're going to just do one. But you have to know that there's this, these all could weigh against each other in many different ways for an exam, more importantly, for your practice. Um, you know, having a little bit of um, reality-based recognition that it's going to be hard to predict how a different person's going to observe the re- requirements of independence for any given tribunal. And the judges could see it differently. You know, some judges could see there being a problem with the lack of security of tenure in one case and could see the degree of uh, interference coming from the outside the tribunal to be a problem in another. Other judges could disagree. You know, that's important for you to have that mentality. So on the exam, I certainly would like to see you, you know, if this comes up, to recognize the sorts of factors that come to bear. Um, but by no means is there one correct answer, you know, to whether a tribunal independence be compromised. Yeah. So just to be clear the difference between um, bias and like tribunal dependence yeah. is where the pressure is coming from. Yeah, yeah. Bias is like coming from the inside and um, independence is coming externally. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. So individual bias comes from within the decision maker. Institutional bias comes from within the administrative tribunal itself. Independence comes from outside the tribunal entirely. Okay, so any other questions? Yeah. Um, just when you're talking about the, the factors in the institutional um, Well, those are those four indicia of judicial independence, you know, tenure, financial security, administrative control, and deliberative uh, autonomy. I think that those encompass, you know, broadly what we're what we're covering here in terms of potential sources of um, external pressure. So I, I don't think that there's really much need to think outside those categories, but there is a need to recognize what could go to one of those categories is really broad. Like there's a lot of different ways that there could be pressure being brought on a tribunal that falls under one of those categories. Um, It always though is principle. And if you feel like there's something that doesn't fit neatly into one of those categories, but that does compromise the tribunal's ability to decide independently, well, then you have a tribunal independence concern. And you know you don't want to let the, the essence of the problem that this tribunal's not independently deciding its cases, but is subject to external pressure. You don't want that essence of the problem to be lost by sort of categorization. So I, I, I think you can probably fit most things that I can think of into those categories. But if you find that you can't, go to the nub of the problem, which is, are, am I free to decide? 
All right. All right, well, that's good. So we'll begin to the Oceanport case, and then we'll take our break, and then we can get into the to Seiko and delay. Just good timing. Um, so Oceanport is a um, quite a tight case. You know, it's 23 pages with the footnotes or the headnotes and everything. Um, it's a it's a well written case. Chief Justice McLaughlin, I think, is um, you know one of the best writers on the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, she had I had the opportunity to work for her, which was awesome, and she had the really neat, um, frustrating, but really effective writing style where she would decide a case. She'd say, we're going to decide it this way for these basic reasons. Then she would say, okay, now you go write it. And you go and you're like, oh, I'm going to write. This is awesome. Then you write the case, and then she says, okay, good, and barely reads it. And then circulates it to all the other judges, and they uh, red ink, red ink, comment, 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 comment. Comes back to her. She's like, okay, do another draft. Do another draft, another draft, draft. Circulate it. Okay, less comments. We're assuming we're okay. And she's like, okay, great. Throws it away and writes the whole thing over again, you know, just based on having now thought it through completely and not being married to anything because she didn't even write it the first time around. And so that's why her judgments, I think, are often tight and concise. Whereas a lot of other people's judgments will go on for, you know, Abramitz versus Oceanport. They both get it. Oceanport's a more complicated case in some ways in terms of what it's, the ideas it's getting at, but it's accessible and short and, um, you know, a much more engaging read, I think. And so, you know, it's, it's a little tip that I have taken up, which is like, you can't always do it. You can frankly rarely do it. But when something's really important, that process of writing something, revising it, thinking about it, and then like having that big moment where you press Control N and have a new document and start typing over again, is like, inevitably going to get you your best work. So when things are really important, that's something to keep in your back of your mind as a very effective writing approach. So that's how she does it, and I think it's a clear example here of just focus to the point judicial writing. That's why I like it so much. Um, interesting facts, too, in a sense. So you have a bar that's getting in trouble with the liquor board. Forget what, maybe sale to minors, let's call it that. And Oceanport, the, the applicant for judicial review, the first level decision maker, let's call it the tribunal, probably just in one individual inspector, says, okay, you violated your... In the terms of your liquor license, uh, I'm going to give you a two-day suspension. So you can't sell booze for two days. Now, at this tribunal level, there's, there's a concern because there's first you decided that, but there are also people investigating that. So there's a multifunctionality at this tribunal level concern that comes up where they're saying, wait, this tribunal is investigating and suspending me, and that's unfair. But the statute has a internal appeal mechanism. You can go to the Liquor Appeal Board. So that's what happens. You go to the Appeal Board. Uh, 
And the appeal board, this is important, conducts what's called a de novo hearing. This is a term you should have in your mind, de novo hearing. And a de novo hearing is different from a review on the record or an ordinary appeal. It's a case where we say, we're going to hear this thing all over again. I don't care what evidence you put forward the last time around, you could put forward new evidence. Forward any evidence you want to. I don't care what arguments you made last time. I don't care what they decided. I'm doing this over, starting this afresh, giving you a new chance. Now, as you can imagine, the ability to have a de novo hearing, if you were doing a Baker analysis, would really weigh down or would really push down what fairness you could expect at this level because you get a complete do-over here. If you were to complain about some tribunal procedural unfairness here, you'd be very unlikely to find a sympathetic court. They'd say, well, just go do your de novo hearing, cure it up there. So that happens. But the concern with the appeal board is that they do not have security of tenure. So Oceanport says, these are people who are interfering with my fundamental ability to run my business, to serve liquor, which is key to you know, me keeping the lights on. These people should be sufficiently free of government interference. They should have security of tenure. They shouldn't be fireable at any time as at pleasure appointments. So that's the, you gotta get the two big arguments here. We've got the multifunctionality at tribunal level, and we've got the, uh, the question of security of tenure at the appeal board. You know, we go up through the courts, BC Supreme Court, BC Court of Appeal, Supreme Court of Canada. BC Court of Appeal says there's a Quebec case called Reggie. That case shows that there is a fundamental problem with these kind of at-pleasure appointments doesn't provide sufficient guarantees of independence, and in the circumstances, therefore, natural justice was violated. Gets the Supreme Court of Canada, and Chief Justice McLaughlin says, right at the outset of her reasons, listen, um, the statute explicitly says that they are going to serve at pleasure. The tenure of these individuals is set out in the statute. BC Court of Appeal, Justice Huddert, I'm sorry, but you looked at a common law rule and didn't follow a statute because you thought it was inconsistent with the common law natural justice rule, and you can't do that. I mean, it's kind of remarkable um, how easy it is to make these kind of fundamental mistakes, and you know, it's the majority of the BC Court of Appeal did it. But Chief Justice McLaughlin says, I think that it's inescapable that this was an error. Some, something along those lines is her, is her language. She says, we have to think big picture. If the legislature said something is to be the case, we're going to follow it when we're applying the common law, unless we can bring the Constitution in to trump that legislation. And she says, here, I can't find a constitutional basis. There's not Section 7 at issue. It's not another constitutional argument to say that 
security of tenure, you know, is a principle that can be used to strike down the statute. They try some creative things. They start referring to preamble to the Constitution, the notion of a um, government similar in principle to that of the UK. These are arguments that are mentioned as having been tried and failing in this. I don't want to get too far down the road of some of those constitutional arguments. They were creative, but also a bit flaily, if you ask me. It feels like they sort of knew they were in a tough spot and were trying to find a constitutional you know, light that wasn't really on. Um, and, you know, I think one paragraph to just highlight in your notes uh, and to come back to as, as this big picture, what is admin law? What are we doing here? How are we going to, you know, have a mindset that would avoid the kind of mistake Justice Hutter had said, fell into? Justice Hutter, a brilliant judge. I think she's one of the best. She says, you know, paragraph 27, in my view, the legislature's intention that board members should serve at pleasure as expressed through section 32 sub A is unequivocal. So we have unequivocal legislative intention. As such, it does not permit the argument the statute is ambiguous and hence should be read as imposing a higher degree of independence to meet the requirements of natural justice, if indeed a higher standard is required. So she says, look, common law could require more independence to, to feel like it's comporting with natural justice. I'm not even going to decide if it does or it doesn't. It doesn't matter because the statute's clear and unambiguous. She says, well, it's certainly easy to imagine more exacting safeguards of independence, longer fixed term appointments, full-time appointments, a panel selection process for appointing members to panels instead of the chair's discretion all features of what was happening here. However, in each case, one must face the question, is this what the legislature intended? And that's what I would just pause and say, that is maybe your guiding light for admin law. Is this what the legislature intended? Given the legislature's willingness to countenance at pleasure appointments with full knowledge of the process and penalties involved, it's impossible to answer this question in the affirmative. Justice Huddert concluded that tenure enjoyed by board members was no better than an appointment at pleasure. However, that's precisely the standard of independence required by the act. Where the intention of the legislature as here is unequivocal, there's no room to import common law doctrines of independence, however inviting it may be for a court to do so. So this is just, I think, as clear and concise and direct, and I think it should feel very familiar at this point, statement of the role of statutory intent in this administrative law project, leaving aside the charter, we're getting there down the line, we're always in this framework. Is this what the legislature intended? And in the face of nothing that's unequivocal, clear, well, then we're going to look to our common law ideas to guide our understanding of what the legislature intended and presuming fairness, presuming, as we'll see, reasonableness. But it's always directed at what did the legislature intend. So it's a, this is like a good capstone on that concept that is 
so key to understanding this course. Um, the court goes on to note that there's no quasi-constitutional guarantee here. Uh, the, Reg the Reggie case from Quebec that the court had mentioned did have such a quasi-constitutional guarantee at issue. There's a Quebec charter that provided some guarantee of independence from tribunals, and so that was relied upon as a distinguishing factor in that case. And the court said, noted that the, the board is not, in essence, a provincial court. And this is an idea I'm going to briefly come back to with a sort of a side about an interesting case mentioned in your book that's not really been followed, but maybe has some, some interest. So I'm just going to put a pin in that. Um, Actually, maybe that's all I have to say on ocean port. So, so the court ends up finding legislature explicitly intended that this type of appointment to happen. No constitutional basis interfere with that. Therefore, no independence concern. The, briefly, the case I wanted to just just flag, and I don't want you to over read this case or really think it's it's too much of anything except for an interesting thought that you want to have percolating, especially when we get to the very end of the course and the question of section 96 courts and how the theoretical uh, structure of the constitution and the court's place within that structure has some ongoing resonance for the process of administrative law delegation, all stuff we're getting to. Um, but the, this case, it's called the McKenzie case, I believe. It's out of uh, BC and it's Justice McEwen, who is in a little bit of a, um, I don't know what the word is, a bit, bit of a um, maverick kind of judge, someone who's willing to say and do things other judges weren't necessarily willing to say and do in a good way, pushing the law forward, interesting cases with a strong sense of justice for the people before him. He retired recently, sat in Kelowna, I believe. Justice McEwen has a case before him that involves the question of the independence of residential tenancy branch adjudicators. I believe even their compensation was part of it. And the argument is made that these adjudicators need to have the same independence as would be given to judges, and that would include all the indicia of judicial independence, tenure, pay, etc. And Justice McEwen, post-Oceanport, accepts that and says, yes, I agree. Statute clearly doesn't say that that's the case, right? Like the statute does not say these people are gonna have um, guaranteed employment till 75 and get paid in the three or $400,000 range. So how does Justice McEwen get there in the face of Oceanport and not just be plainly and obviously wrong is he says, well, listen, Oceanport is about a purely administrative thing. You have somebody getting a license from the government 
and there being a licensing regime that they're involved with. And this is quintessential executive functioning. This is the kind of stuff that we've always expected the executive branch of government to be dealing with. But the residential tenancy branch is a different thing. And at the time of Confederation, at the time the Constitution was written, people would have expected the courts to decide residential tenancy matters. If you were upset with a lease, you would go to the courts, not to some administrative board. That was completely unknown at the time. So his theory is the Constitution wouldn't allow you to evade judicial independence by taking something that was traditionally the realm of judges with their indicia of judicial independence and giving it to somebody who doesn't have those indicia. So therefore, I must presume the Constitution requires this board to have those same levels of independence. Now, this has not been followed in other jurisdictions, not been approved by the Court of Appeal, and is definitely an outlier of a case. I'm not sure that there aren't other considerations that would be an answer to Justice McEwen's concerns. But more broadly, you can see, I think, the logic to it, which is judicial independence is threatened if core judicial functions are taken away from the judges and given to entities that don't have the same guarantees of independence. So I raise this as an interesting case to think about and a potential that the constitutional story is not fully written on the independence of these tribunals. Don't worry about it for more than that, but it's just something interesting to think about. And then hopefully when we come back to section 96 courts, this will ring a bell and it'll come together nicely at the end of the class. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. And so then when we were going through the institutional bias test, we're talking about judicial independence. So I'm just trying to understand like how those two things. Yeah, so yeah, it's a good question. I think you may have just slightly misspoke when we went through the um, the independence test, not the institutional bias test. We went through the tribunal independence test, that's when we went through the uh, yes, Yeah, yeah. So no, yeah, I just I just want to make sure we're on the same yeah, page there. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great point. I think what she's saying is you can't just import them wholesale. You can't say, okay, judges need to have security of tenure, so every tribunal member has to have security of tenure. That doesn't mean, though, that there can't be problems with tenure, problems with compensation, problems with administrative control. This just means that you're not going to guarantee the same levels at these tribunals. There are considerations that the common law could require. The common law could say, listen, in order for me to feel this tribunal sufficiently independent to do its job impartially, you know, as that test um, that, I, that I read sets out, I feel like I can't have a tribunal member able to be fired at any time. I feel like I can't have 
the Minister of Environment in charge of firing somebody whose job is to adjudicate difficult environmental questions at will. That sort of thing certainly could arise. So these are, you want to think of these, the judicial independence indicia as categories of problems that really could give rise to a tribunal independence problem. But you want to think of these things as the sort of high level gold standard of independence that applies to the judiciary. And there are things about the judiciary that make it different from a tribunal. That's what McLaughlin's getting at there, I think. And so she's saying you can't just import this level to the tribunals here because context may mean that much lower levels of security of tenure, security of compensation, et cetera, is still adequate to get to a minimal standard. Or we might have the legislature just have, you know, have set out a different standard. And we don't have a constitutional basis to say these things. Or sorry, a constitutional basis to guarantee these things. So she's not saying that these aren't relevant considerations. She is saying that you're not going to guarantee the same level because of the context of tribunals. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, yeah, that's uh, that's fine. And I think reasonable people can 100% disagree on how far you should go on these tribunal independence questions and whether it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're getting at a, just a key important thing, which is you connected context to arbitrariness. And I think that that is the price you can pay when you say everything is context, everything is factors, everything is way 10 things against each other. And I kind of get at that without maybe using the arbitrariness word by saying lack of predictability, reasonable people disagree. And then it feels or it can feel arbitrary. So saying that I've got, I think you're, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. You're saying on the one hand, I've got these sort of constitutionally enshrined, you know, decently clear minimal standards. Over here, I've got a morass of, of context. And if you're trying to tell me that I'm really doing the same thing here and here, they're just categorically sort of different. I think that's a really good point. At the same time, it doesn't mean that when you're doing that morass of context and putting all these different factors against each other, um, you, you, any discretion, any balancing, you know, needs to be guided by principle. And the clearer those principles are articulated, the more uh, comfort we can have that there's something that's, you know, in charge of this discretion in a sense. And so identifying these four factors is the things that are going to be what guides your discussion of you know, what the minimal standards are it does have some some help to it, but I get why it's frustrating to you. Yeah. So to be clear, if if in this case it the statute didn't explicitly um, mm -hmm. allow for serving at pleasure. You think there would be more issues? Hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. 
Yeah, like the Reggie case would be is a good one. Um, there, there's a couple of cases mentioned in there and in the book that that talk a bit about this. So you can certainly look for other examples of it. But yes, that's the fundamental point. It's exactly right that, and I'm really glad we're you're ending on emphasizing this. So the common law does have, as part of its principles of justice and procedural fairness, the idea that tribunal members should have independence. That's not the highest level of you know requirement to satisfy minimal standards, and it's going to be context dependent as to what's required in the circumstances. But absent a statute saying, forget about that, I'm happy with this level of independence, you're going to do an analysis and you're going to be looking at the full context to try to ascertain, you know, what's the minimal standard that I couldn't imagine the legislature ever intended this tribunal to operate, you know, not having that much independence. And that's looking at like those four factors. That's right. Any other questions? Okay, let's take our break. Let's come back at 45 so we can get through the last couple cases. Okay, the reason that you have the Taseco case is really for an illustration of Audi Alterum Partum and a good run through the Baker factors. But I also like it because it starts to introduce the idea of the intersection of Aboriginal law and administrative law that we're going to spend a lot more time on. So I'll touch on the case in that context as well. But first I want to um, you know, give a little bit of time to the facts here in the statutory context because this is another example of a really complex administrative proceeding which I think helps you, you know, get a sense as to what it all might entail to, to really do this analysis at a at a reasonable level. Um, this was a case that I'm very familiar with. I actually worked on it at the federal court level. And then I, um, I think I wrote the factum for the appeal, but then I left the Department of Justice. Um, so I remember it well. Um, and one of the funniest things where I met this lawyer who's like the absolute greatest, this guy, Jay Nelson, he kind of won that Silco team title case along with David Rosenberg, but he really is a, remarkable lawyer and I was meeting him for the first time in person I was pretty excited and we were in court and we were all robed and he was wearing a shirt that like came down to here and I was like it's like showing quite a bit of skin Jay <laughs> and then his co-counsel showed up and she was wearing robes they didn't look they fit her so well and I was like what's going on and he's so nice and cool he's like oh yeah he's like yeah she forgot her robes so we just like swapped so he was, he was wearing her clothes and she was wearing his robes um, anyways, he's incredible. It was a really neat case. Uh, and I'll tell you about it. So this is a environmental assessment case. Taseco Mines wants to build a mine in near Williams Lake, British Columbia. Some of you are probably familiar with that area. Uh, Silco Teen First Nation have their title really close to there. Uh, this is not in their title lands. This is just outside in an area they've claimed Aboriginal rights hunt, fish, and trap. So strongly asserted Aboriginal rights in this area. Taseco goes forward with a proposal to build Prosperity Mine, not New Prosperity, Prosperity. Gets approved by the BC Environmental Assessment Office. But there is a federal component to this decision-making also. 
And so they need federal approval also because of the impact on fish habitat mostly, a few other issues, but mostly fish habitat. And the federal government says no to prosperity. They say this design of this mine is to destroy this lake. Seiko has the bad luck of the lake being named Fish Lake, which is a lot nicer sounding than the lake next door. They could have chosen called Wasp Lake, which probably would have chosen that one. But they decide they're going to destroy Fish Lake and their design environmental assessment office, federal, federal environmental assessment agency, I should say, says, no, you can't do it. Don't get the approval. You need both. It's like the nuclear sub. You need federal and provincial approval in order to, to build this mine. So they go back to the drawing board. They come up with new prosperity mine. And the plan here is to, is to preserve Fish Lake. And they'll build a tailing storage facility you know, elsewhere. It doesn't involve destroying Fish Lake. So they, um, they plan. But there is a lengthy environmental assessment process, a lengthy hearing that leads to a lengthy report. And this is all under the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act 2012. And what you get is a federal review panel issues this report about the new Prosperity Gold Copper Mine project. And if you look through the uh, contents, you'll see they just go through an extraordinarily wide amount of things. Hydrogeology, surface hydrology, fish and fish habitat, vegetation, wildlife, atmospheric environment, human health, Aboriginal matters, Aboriginal rights and titles, socioeconomic conditions. You know, it goes on and on and on in the things they cover. They do this hearing over a huge number of days with mountains of evidence. There's cross-examination of witnesses. There's powers of discovery. You really couldn't have a more in-depth administrative process. It's probably closest to a commission of inquiry than anything else. Deep, deep, deep process, experts, expert witnesses on both sides of the issue. You get that report issued on you know, Halloween, as you may have noticed, October 31st. So I'm just going to diagram this a bit. So you have the report issued Halloween. Now, what does Taseko do when this report is issued? They immediately bring a judicial review of the report. They don't like the findings, because the findings are, you're not going to save Fish Lake. Your plan's not going to work. They bring a judicial review to federal court. This is JR1. But here's what's sort of remarkable. This report in and of itself does nothing. It is just recommendations. Because the statutory scheme has two more steps before there's a binding decision that affects Taseko. First, it has to go to the Minister of Environment. The Minister of Environment takes the report 
and looks at it for one thing in particular. And she looks at the report to see if it finds there would be significant adverse environmental effects from this project. Now, the panel says there's going to be. The report says there's going to be. But it's actually not their job to make that final conclusion. It's the Minister of Environment on review of the report. So she reviews the report and she says, this report concludes there will be significant adverse environmental effects. I accept that. It's got another step. It next goes to the governor and council. The governor and council's job is to say, given these adverse environmental effects that the Minister of Environment has accepted, do we consider those effects are justified in the circumstances? So simply saying there is going to be adverse environmental effects doesn't doom the project because there may be other considerations that say, yeah, bad effects, but they're needed for the economic development or for whatever other reasons there are. Governor and council here says, I accept, or you know, I, I, I'm told there are significant adverse environmental effects and I do not accept they're justified in the circumstances, therefore no approval. So Taseco brings a second judicial review to the federal court, and that is of the GIC and minister decisions combined. They come out in one decision statement. You don't even actually know what the minister environment has decided until after the GIC has decided. That goes up to the federal court of appeal because the federal court dismisses both judicial reviews. And that's where we are right now, Federal Court of Appeal. Just really quickly to make sure we're on the same page, governor and council is pretty much a fancy word for saying cabinet. So it's the highest level ministers in the uh, executive, is highest level executive decision-making process. So this structure I think gives rise to a whole lot of interesting considerations we can draw out when we're framing it within Baker and Audi Alterum Partum. Now, what were Taseco's big concerns about this process? And here's where the intersection of Aboriginal and administrative law comes to the fore. Taseco was upset because the Silco Tea National Government was really against this project. And they had done two things. They had met with the Minister of Environment, and I believe that was around October 2nd, so before the panel report even came out. And they had made a written submission to the Minister of Environment. Taseko was not present at that meeting and did not receive or have a chance to respond to the written submission. So what's the general framing that Taseko is basing their procedural concerns? 
This is an Audi Alterum Partum concern. They're saying, I didn't know the case, and therefore, by definition, I didn't have a chance to meet it. So, Federal Court of Appeal has both things before them. DeSeco has a whack of concerns about the process that led to this report and a whack of substantive arguments as to why the report was flawed. Those are in a whole different judicial decision. I didn't assign both. I could have, but I didn't. Here, again, we are just dealing with, after the report, the minister and the GIC issues. And so we have this question. We have a meeting. We have a, a written submission. We have the dilemma. Does this violate their right to know the case? And then we have the court applying the Baker analysis to think through what level of participatory rights was necessary. Was there a breach of fairness here by the minister having this meeting and by the minister receiving this report? And they go through the Baker factors and they first look at the nature of decision and they decide this is not court-like. Now, the process down here to make this report, that was pretty court-like. You had a panel, you had lawyers on both sides, you had witnesses being examined, discovery, disclosure. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about what the Minister of Environment first had to do, and then we'll talk about what the GIC had to do. But the Minister of Environment had to do was take a recommendation and decide to either accept or not accept it. And that's not very court-like. Let me go to the nature of the statutory scheme. Here's an interesting wrinkle on, you know, my, my general principle is that end of the line equals more fairness. But here the court says, yes, I agree, that's generally the principle. But a bit of a wrinkle here is that I'm going to sort of be satisfied that the process that you got down here helps limit what you need at the end of the line. Because you got so much opportunity to know the case, examine people, make submissions. It would be silly to think the legislature intended to have a second court-like process here. You know, a second process where you get full discovery, full cross-examination, full everything, this, that, and the other. They say, let's be real. This thing has been designed so the process comes in this environmental assessment hearing. So I don't want this to be, you know, too confusing. And as you know, I'm always loathe to have exceptions start to cloud the, the broad general rule. General rule here is really end of the line is going to mean more fairness. But you can't go too far with that principle and you have to leave a little room for reality. And if you have a structure where there is a previous thing where all the process in the world's thrown at somebody. The notion that just because you're now at the end of the line means you could have to 
you know, match or exceed that process doesn't really make a lot of sense. So here, the statutory scheme and its nature pointed towards less process at this level because you'd already gotten it all down here. You know, it's not the same as the, the example of, you know, even an ocean port where you have this liquor board or liquor um, inspector doing kind of quick decisions and then an appeal board giving you a full de novo hearing. It's kind of the, the opposite of that, yeah. Yes, this is all for district number two. The one that we're reading is, yeah. is JR number two. Yeah, so JR number one happened, but don't worry about it. I mean, it was dismissed. They went through a whack of arguments, but JR two, I think, has more interesting kind of public law concerns. They, do, they also touch on importance. And they say, um, yes, very important, but there are more important things than your economic interests. They then talk about legitimate expectations. And they say, you didn't have any legitimate expectation that this minister was going to engage you. The minister had a discretionary power to further engage you, but didn't have an obligation or any expectation that she would do so. And then they say, you must be cognizant that the statute leaves a lot of room for procedural choices for this minister. Like, do I engage this person further? That's one of their choices. So all those things they find point to a very low or a low degree of fairness owed in the circumstances, which is a kind of remarkable outcome given this is a billion dollar mine with a ton of jobs hanging on it that you could get to a low procedural fairness requirement. But that is because this lower level that had the high procedural fairness requirements. So they say, well, was it a problem that you met, the minister met with the Silco team? And they say, it wasn't. And they, there's a few things that are interesting here. One is they say, listen, Taseiko, you seem to be suggesting that knowing the fact of this meeting means it is the government's job to now prove to the court that nothing potentially prejudicial happened there. And the court says, you got that wrong. It's the other way around. It's always your job to prove something prejudicial did happen. Now, not to prove something prejudicial, but something that appears prejudicial. So it's a lower standard. But you need to at least prove that appearance. And you can't just say something happened. You, you proved to me that it didn't look prejudicial. Always the burden is going to be on the applicant, you know, in any legal proceeding, more or less. And they say, so let's actually dig into the full context of these meetings. And let's look at two key factors. Was there anything new? And was there anything prejudicial? And there's lots of evidence that says there was nothing new with these meetings. And in fact, I think if any of you have engaged in Aboriginal consultation issues, you'll know you say the same stuff over and over and over again to different decision makers. Nothing new came out of these meetings. And there was nothing otherwise prejudicial that happened at these meetings. And in fact, they were before the report was even issued. So it wasn't as if there was some you know, submission about the report or even knowledge which way the report was going to go. 
So the court finds that you haven't shown an appearance of unfairness. The court also looks at the submission and reads it and says, again, nothing new here, nothing prejudicial here, just the same stuff you've responded to over and over again being repeated back. And so the court says there is not even a violation of Audi Alter Impartum. There's not a violation here because nothing new, nothing prejudicial happened. The low duty of fairness means there is no obligation to go engage you further or anything like that. So we are not concerned with a breach of procedural fairness in the Minister of Environment level. A couple things that I want to touch on briefly. One is, coming back to that point we talked about last class, you're supposed to raise these things when you first find out about them. And there was a rather interesting twist on that in this case, where the chief of Silco team had posted on his private Facebook pictures of himself at the meeting with the minister that day. Now, a reality with major resource companies and chiefs of First Nations is there's no such thing as private you know, social media for, for indigenous leaders who may have run-ins with these sorts of groups. Um, the reality is inevitably there's, you know, there's people who are monitoring those, those, those social media accounts. Uh, and, and rightfully so, I think, if there's maybe things that, that come up and affect the company's interests, I understand why they might do it, although sometimes it's a bit deceptive where they'll have a fake account that will you know, friend this person and then follow, follow them, monitor them. But the chiefs all know and expect that everything they say is being monitored by, by industry, and it is. And it came out you know, in cross-examination on affidavits that, yeah, you knew about this Facebook post the day it happened, Taseko did, through their monitoring of the chief's Facebook. And where's the problem? They didn't say anything until the judicial review. So this is a, an instance where the court was very concerned that they failed to fulfill their obligation to raise procedural concerns as a matter of first instance. The minister could have potentially met with them or done something to cure the, any potential prejudice. And withholding it was seen as um, you know, a failure of Taseko to discharge its obligations in this context. Another contextual factor that comes out in the judgment is that it's not as if the Silico team was the only group meeting with anybody. Taseko was engaged in a full-on lobbying effort. You know, they had the BC Minister of Mines fly out to meet the federal counterparts to push for the mine. They hired an old chief of the Silco team uh, as a lobbyist on their behalf. There is extensive letter writing op-ed campaigns. So the notion that one meeting with Silco team somehow was, you know, untoward falls a little bit less flat, or a little flat, I would say, when there's this, this giant lobbying campaign that's going on. So the next thing I want to say about this case, and I don't think I'll get to delay today, but that's okay, because the next class is really an intro to substantive review, and we can touch on delay at that time. 
Another interesting point I want to raise out of this case, getting at that intersection of Aboriginal and, and um, administrative law, is it didn't really arise here. Like the real problem that's, that's going to be very tricky to reconcile didn't arise here. And that tricky problem is what to do when the duty to consult and the honor of the crown is only able to be adequately discharged by not providing otherwise necessary procedural protections to a non-Indigenous interested person. So what I'm getting at here is you have the duty to consult. What's the source of the duty to consult? We all probably know it's the Constitution, right? Section 35 and the honor of the crown principle more broadly, which is also a constitutional principle. So you have a constitutional obligation on the government to consult. You have administrative law obligations to comply with the common law of natural justice and procedural fairness. Now, Taseko's argument wasn't accepted, but what they were saying is you violated my duty of fairness and procedural, or my duty of, your duty of fairness towards me and my right to procedural fairness. You violated that in a pretty obvious way in that you're, you're meeting with opponents secretly and taking secret submissions. Like ordinarily, if you couldn't say there's really nothing new, that is a problem. You can't be meeting with opponents of a project, getting secret submissions from them. So let's just imagine that the fact was there was a bunch of new stuff here. Be a much more interesting case and much more difficult because what's the court to do? How are you to reconcile the government's competing obligations? Sometimes you may be able to say, just do both. Meet with the First Nation, but if there's new and compelling information that's given to you, share it with the proponent. Give them a chance to respond. Have the proponent at that meeting. You know, there are conceivable ways that you could just avoid this by complying with both duties. The problem is the real world, which is that there are some proponents who get excellent relations with First Nations. And in fact, some First Nations I've worked with would rather see a representative of some companies at the table than the government. The, the, you know, they at least know where industry is coming from, and they at least know that they can be relatively straight and deal with them as business people, whereas the government, there's a bit of history there. And the, uh, but there's also industry uh, actors who have atrocious relationships with First Nations and who are, whatever concerns the nations have with the way the government's treated them in recent years or historically, uh, they almost pale in concern to some of the ways that some industry has, has, has acted. And, um, you know, there are some stories of just blatant corruption. You know, I, nation I worked with had a story of um, going into a meeting with a developer, I won't say what, or any more clue than that. And they left and like, oh, you forgot your bag with $75,000 in it. Like they just left a bag of cash on the table. It's how they do business. You know, maybe you won't oppose this one. So there's there's corruption like that, and there's also just some, you know, some blatant, um, frankly, some racism, some some just philosophical. There's no basis to need to, uh, you know, 
cater to Aboriginal rights. We need to just develop, develop. I don't believe in this stuff. All that, all those things can lead to attitudes that can be very um, detrimental to conducive consultation if this group's sitting at the table. And Taseko fell in that category. You know, they hated each other. And so if you were to say to a nation, yes, we're doing our honorable constitutional duty of consultation, and we're meeting with you to understand your deep concerns, and please feel open to tell us your oral history, share your deepest stories, share your nation's weaknesses and concerns. And that Taseko guy's right there, so just don't mind him. You know, that would not be conducive to that being a meaningful process. Similarly, if they were to say, I'm taking notes and I will be sharing them with the Seiko so they can respond to everything that you say. So there may be circumstances where you can't really comply with both. You can't meet with the nation, hear them out in a confidence that you can have a true and honest exchange of information, while at the same time making sure that every single thing that could be prejudicial to a proponent is, is heard by that proponent, responded to. So this is the tension that was thought to be raised in this case, but was avoided by them being found to not have had a procedural right that was violated, but it's very much coming. And I just want to flag it because, you know, we're here, we're going to get back to this area, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about, you know, a really high level tension where the constitution comes crashing into these duties of procedural justice and natural or procedural fairness and natural justice. And, you know, I think when you think about this in light of Oceanport, you can see which way it's probably going to go. Who's going to have to yield, the constitutional right or the common law right? You know, you expect it to be the, the, the common law right will have to ultimately yield. Um, okay, so I'm just going to finish up very quickly on Taseko. Um, this was all about the Minister of Environment her decision to accept there is significant adverse environmental effects. She's the one who got the submission. She's the one who had the meeting. Governor and council is the next decision maker. And the court very briefly just explains that the level of procedural fairness that would be owed at a governor and council level is exceedingly low. This is the least court-like you could have. This is the highest levels of government balancing any consideration they like to see if something's justified in the circumstances. I mean, maybe not any consideration, but any relevant consideration broadly, which would be very broad indeed, you know, to whether this mine is uh, justifiable, notwithstanding the environmental effects. So you have the highest level of government, no expectation of procedural fairness could reasonably be uh, exist, you know, at most that if you put something before them, they would look at it but no obligation from them to, to hold hearings or to, um, to engage a proponent further. So, you know, this, this is another nice tiny feature of this case to remember. If you want a, a case that's just on the level of procedural fairness at the highest levels of the executive, that can be a sort of um, procedural fairness partner to the Cotter case where it talks about the justiciability of those decisions and things like that. This is a nice one to just have is for that purpose. Any questions? All right, so we are going to get into substantive review next week. The first chapter is really historical, and I will be going through this history 
leading up to getting to Vavilov on Friday. We'll touch on the delay at the beginning also. Um, the history is going to seem really dry and it's going to seem really... Um, you may fail to see the relevancy and it may be tempting to skip the history. I'm going to be 100% honest. With you. If you skip the history, you'll probably get 80% of the way there on all this stuff. It's not probably 100% necessary. But to really understand the tensions that Vavilov answers, knowing that history, you know, it's going to get you all the way there. You're going to have that deeper understanding. So um, yeah, I certainly hope you find time to read that chapter. The really, really, really important read for next week, though, is that Vavilov case. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot of time on that case. That's, along with Baker, the two pillars of this course in some ways. And so you know, that's one to, to put the time into. All right, thanks so much.